of our songs this morning and, and even some of the comments that were made. We began the service with Psalm 46. Psalm 46 was uh, a psalm that became very precious to one of our spiritual forefathers whose name was Martin Luther. In the course of Martin Luther's life, as he was ministering in the city of Wittenberg, Germany, a pretty nasty thing came into town called the plague. And when most of the society was riddled with fear and was running away and understandably leaving town for their own safety, and as sick people were dotting the landscape of that town, Martin Luther decided, I cannot run. I have to stay. And not only did he stay in town to minister to the people who were sick and dying, he turned his own home into a hospital. That decision and that ministry was brave, but it didn't come without its consequences. Luther's own son became very sick, gravely ill. He nearly lost him. But in that context, Psalm 46 became very dear. God is a refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not be moved. And from his meditation on that text came the first hymn we sang this morning. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he, amid the flood of mortal ills, prevailing. It's a song about not only the great power of our God, but the unstoppable power, the irresistible power, so that even the powers of of hell itself, the prince of darkness grim, cannot stand and have any moving influence over the power of the God who is our refuge and strength. We need to re be reminded of that message, don't we? Often. Because the prince of darkness grim is alive and well and active in the world today. And we feel the effects of it, don't we? We feel it personally, individually. We see it globally and everything in between. But we need to be reminded sometimes that we do not need to tremble for Him. His Rage we can endure. For lo, behold, his doom is sure. And our Savior is not going to scratch and claw and fight till the bitter end and barely hang on and in the midst of uh, a bloody face and weak knees and broken arms destroy him. Now Luther said, one little word. That's the power of your God, is it not? Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 is a passage that is meant to reinforce us and strengthen us in that very truth. But Peter does it in a very pastoral way that is true to the very circumstances of the readers who are reading what he has to say. In our study of 1 Peter to this point, we have been learning what it means to live as strangers, as Christian strangers in the world. I think we all recognize by now that there is a unique difficulty that Christians face in the world today. There is a certain pressure in everyday life to turn back to the world and to its values, to where we came from before we knew Christ. 
There is a certain enticement for us to quit the fight and to return and to, to let go of our identity in Christ, to let go of our devotion to him and to just go along with the rest of the world. There's a certain discomfort that God's people feel in the world today, right? I mean, are you starting to feel more and more like, I don't know, like maybe this just isn't our ultimate home? You should. We ought to feel that way. There is a certain detachment that God's people do feel and ought to feel in this world because our hearts and our minds are set on things above and not on things on the earth. And yet there is a tension within us because we know that that feeling and that understanding, though it is spiritually driven, does not mean that we are to disengage from the world in which we live today. And that's what Peter is writing about. He writes this book to encourage God's people not to disengage from the world, and not to retreat from its hostility, nor to give in to its pressures and enticements, or even to go along with its fears. But on the contrary, he writes this book to remind us of who we are in Christ. And when we remember who we are in Christ, we have a whole new perspective on everything else we face in the world. And that idea, that remembrance of who we are in Christ will then inform how we live in this present world, even as we realize more and more how much we are actually strangers here. We are temporary residents. We are passing through a foreign land, and as such, we never quite feel at home. That can be perplexing. It can be frustrating. But Peter reminds us, no, this is normal. This is who you are, and it's okay. Don't let the world pull you in the other direction. Well, to teach us in all of this, throughout the epistle, Peter has been mixing lofty divine truth, fixing our gaze on who God is, and singing, as it were, a doxology to him for how great he is and how powerful he is. And then, as if he's got one hand up in the heavens, he's got another hand down here on earth, giving us practical instruction on how to live in light of that doxology. And it's like he is bouncing back and forth between fixing our gaze on Christ and then teaching us how to live in light of it right here and right now in our present condition. Peter writes of the reality of suffering for Christ's sake. He doesn't minimize it. You know as well as I do that when somebody is suffering, one of the worst things you can do is say, well, it's not that bad. Come on. You know? Or to sort of communicate to somebody else that, well, there's always somebody suffering worse than you are, so... Yeah, that's no encouragement to anybody, right? In fact, it... You can't make it worse. We know. That's not what Peter does here. He's not minimizing the suffering. He's acknowledging it's real. But here's how you live. Here's how you respond in a distinctively Christian way. Don't respond like the rest of the world. Respond in a, di in a distinctively Christian way. Now, you're in 1 Peter chapter 4, but before we look at that, I want to back up just a little bit to chapter 3 verses 13 and through 17. Follow along as I read those verses. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Several weeks ago, we studied those verses 
and we noted five characteristics that mark the Christian's life in all things, even in responding to trouble. And maybe you remember that, maybe not. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands. But what we saw there was five crucial principles. Number one, be passionate for goodness. Number two, be fearless in suffering. Number three, devote yourself to Christ. Number four, know what you believe. And number five, maintain a pure conscience. Five principles that ought to mark every Christian in how we respond to the world in which we live. Then, furthermore, last week in chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, we learned that we are to live with the imminent return of Christ in view, that we are to think soberly, that we are to pray dependently, and love earnestly, give generously, and serve faithfully. Again, responses, characteristics that mark God's people as they live in this present world and all the suffering that comes with it. Now, as we look into our text for today, which is chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, 12 through the end of the chapter, Peter adds to that list. He fills out the picture a little bit more. It's coming into clearer focus that as Christians, we actually don't have time to be fearful. And we don't have time to get carried away with the things that so easily distract the world because we've got a whole list of stuff that needs our attention as we seek to pursue Christ-likeness in our own lives and in our own responses. Right? And that's what Peter is doing. He's resetting our focus on, yeah, here's the reality. We live as sojourners in this world. We're going to suffer for, for righteousness' sake. Here's how we ought to live in light of it. He fills out the picture a little bit more. As we remember the fact that the return of Christ is near, and as we live as strangers in a sinful world and bear the, un the unpleasant effects of it, what are we supposed to think? How are we supposed to respond? How are we supposed to live from day to day? Peter continues explaining that in verse 12. Follow along as I read. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In the summer of 64 AD, it's not 1964, that's the actual 64, there was a massive, a massive fire that spread through the city of Rome destroying a significant portion of the city. As the story goes, Emperor Nero watched with morbid excitement, morbid glee from his tower, since, after all, he is, from what we know, the one responsible for the fire. He wanted to develop a portion of the city for his own pleasure, so this was how he made room by destroying the lives and the livelihood of many poor citizens in Rome. And in the fallout, 
As popular opinion of Nero plummeted significantly, almost stirring revolution in the city, Nero, in order to save face, shifted blame for the fire to, you guessed it, Christians. And at that point, a period of severe persecution on Christians began throughout the world that would last for some 200 years. Now, when Peter wrote this epistle, in the text that we're studying this morning, that fire had not yet happened. It was still maybe a couple years before. But with the language that he uses here, you would almost think he knew it was coming. I don't think he did. But he knew by looking at the landscape of the world at that point, that by looking at what Christians were already beginning to face, that the persecution was already on the rise. In fact, the truth is, what enabled Nero so easily to shift blame to the Christians and so easily turn the population against them was that the hostility of the world had already risen almost to a fever pitch. Rumors about Christians had been spreading already, making them out to be immoral people, making them out to be unhealthy and dangerous to society and a threat to the government. Christians felt the heat of the world's hostility rising, and they knew that they were being targeted and marginalized from society. Pressure to conform was high. Questions about their faith and the truth that they had believed, no doubt, were swirling in their minds. Temptations to be fearful or to retaliate were real. As it turns out, not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? The discomfort, the pressures, the challenges, and the threats that the first century church faced we are in many ways facing today. Maybe not to the same degree yet. But we're facing them. How are God's people supposed to respond? Peter's instruction all along has been a wonderful mix, a wonderful presentation a wonderful approach as of a competent, faithful father coming alongside his fearful children to put them at rest in the midst of their circumstances. Parents, you know what that's like, right? Those days when you, you can't make the pain go away in your children, but you hug them close and you whisper in their ear, it's okay, I'm here. Well, you almost get the same sense when Peter writes this passage, as if he knows something the rest of us need to hear. And Peter teaches God's people in the midst of the mistreatment not to panic, not to fear, not to give in, not to retaliate, but rather to stay the course. To remember who we are in Christ. To keep our eyes on Him. And to remember the eternal heavenly inheritance that He has given to us. To keep our minds on the Word so that we know how to live. And to trust in His sovereign direction of all things. And in our text today, Peter continues hammering these truths home by encouraging God's people with four simple points that show us how we can rejoice with steadfast hope, even in the midst of fiery trials. Not just how we can hang on, but how we can rejoice with steadfast hope, even in the midst of the fiery trials. You want an image in your mind? Think of Daniel's friends in the furnace. And their confident assertion to the king 
whatever you do may indeed kill us. We know our God can deliver us, but even if he chooses not to, we will not move. And what happens? Because they took their stand, God gloriously delivered them from ever having to face any sort of trial ever again, and they lived happily ever after. No, the unthinkable happened. He threw them in the furnace. And there they stood, unmoved. And then he delivered them. Four simple points this morning that show us not just how we can endure, but how we can rejoice and remain steadfast in hope, even in the fiery trials. The first point Peter makes is simply this, be ready. Be ready. We talked last week about one aspect of readiness, that is readiness for the coming of the Lord. And in Verse 7, we saw that the end of all things is at hand, meaning that Jesus is going to return at any moment. And we ought to be thinking that way, and we ought to be ready to see him. Now Peter speaks of another aspect of readiness. That is, being ready for the trials that we are to face in this world. Being ready for the difficulty of living as Christians in this world. He says in verse 12, Beloved. That's a comforting word, isn't it? It's meant to be. It's meant to remind God's people of God's tender love for them. That you are the beloved of God. But it's also meant to remind them of the pastoral love that is behind what Peter is saying. Last week, in the first call, we, it, was a, it was an urgent call. It was a confrontational call. Wake up, lazy ones. Now it's a comforting call. Beloved, let's talk about reality. It's a word of tenderness and comfort because Peter's point is to settle the people down in their time of fear and distress. And he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. That word surprise has the idea of being astonished by something unexpected, of being shocked or shaken or caught off guard or unsettled. The implication is that it is something that initially seems to be out of control or out of place, and there is a natural response of fear. No doubt these Christians who had left everything to follow Christ, who have confessed Him as Lord, who have placed their confidence for eternal life in Him, and who are now facing the consequences for it in this world, are beginning to wonder. They're, they're possibly tempted to fear that they had made the wrong choice, that they have been foolish, that they've mistaken something or, or made a bad decision. They're facing the harsh reality that in Christ their lives did not get easier, but they got more difficult. And the world does not seem to appreciate their newfound devotion. Such a shock could cause the people of God to doubt God, or to doubt their own faith and to drift back to the former way of life. Peter's careful instruction here is meant to settle them down and to prepare them beforehand for, yes, what they're facing now, but what he knows is eventually going to get worse, so that they are not shaken in the midst of it but remain strong and faithful. I have no doubt Peter is remembering a similar conversation with the Lord himself on the night when Jesus was betrayed. In John chapter 13 through 16, Jesus is explaining his own death and how painful things are going to become, not just for him, but how difficult they're going to become for his disciples. You are about to witness something that is going to make it feel like Christ is an absolute failure. 
And what does Jesus tell them? I am saying this now, before it happens, so that when it does happen, you're not surprised. You knew it was coming. You recognize it, and so that you're not shaken, but will remember what I said. And then you will actually not just remember, but you'll be encouraged in the fact that that's, a, that's showing you things are exactly on track the way they were meant to be, under God's perfect design. Then you will be able to remain steadfast in the midst of it because you will remember that I am still in control. That's the essence of what Jesus tells his disciples that night. And that is the essence of what Peter is, is passing on to Christians who suffer. So Peter says, don't be surprised. Don't be shaken. Don't be fearful. Don't be caught off, caught off guard at the, the fiery trial when it comes upon you. You notice he doesn't say if it comes upon you, if it should happen upon you. He says when it comes upon you. Now we in 21st century America to this point, most of us have a hard time imagining that because we haven't yet suffered much for our faith, not in significant ways. Maybe we've been ridiculed from time to time. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it hasn't happened to that magnitude yet in our lifetime. But let us not imagine that because it hasn't happened, it can't happen. In fact, let's remember in the light of history, it's likely to happen. And he says, don't be surprised when that happens. Peter is bracing the people of God for a certain reality that if they are unprepared for it, will have a tendency to shake them and scatter them. And the reality, that, that reality, Peter calls the fiery trial. The obvious implication is that there is an experience that God's people need to be prepared for so that they are not shaken, fearful, and caught off guard, which means it is a shaking and fearful thing. It is a painful thing. It is something you don't want to have to face. It is not something you ask for. But it's something that when you face it, you need to have. What you, you need to have the resources not to be shaken by it. It is an experience that is difficult. But then Peter explains to them why. No matter how bad things get, there is no reason to be surprised or shaken or fearful. And the rest of the verse indicates two stabilizing and comforting truths that God's people need to remember in the midst of their suffering. The first truth is trials are normal. And the second truth is trials are purposeful. So he says, do not be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, this, this isn't unusual. In fact, it's to be expected for a Christian to suffer is not strange. It is the normal experience of Christians throughout history. Christians are a suffering people. And Peter has already acknowledged this back in chapter 1, verse 6. You can look there when he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. There again, he's talking about the reality of suffering in Christian's life and the ability to rejoice in it. And then the Apostle Paul says it much more universally in 2 Timothy 3.12 when he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's normal. Be ready. But in spite of all of this, in the context of what P Peter is saying here, this is not cause for God's people to be fearful. As if Peter is sort of playing a trick on people, saying, ha, 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 get this, your life's about to get worse. So, ha, ha, rejoice. What Peter is saying here is meant to be for the comfort of the people, knowing that this is normal and it is in accord with God's perfect plan under his sovereign control. And so in Peter's instruction, we see not only that trials are normal, but also that trials are purposeful. 
We learn this principle. No suffering in a believer's life is random or meaningless. It all has a purpose by God's design and by His goodness. No suffering in a believer's life is without meaning or purpose. Notice the word Peter uses in verse 12 when he calls it the fiery trial. That seems a little bit ironic, doesn't it? Knowing what's about to happen just a couple short years. But that's not the significance of the phrase here. It's not meant to be ironic. It's meant to be an image of a certain kind of fire. The kind of fire that tries something. The imagery is a refining fire. Not a fire that destroys, but a fire that strengthens as steel being refined so that the impurities are, are removed and the, the metal is strengthened. It's the image of gold being refined in a fire so that it becomes purer and more valuable. That says something about the nature of what they're facing in that moment and what Christians have faced throughout history. And it says something about how we are supposed to understand the trials that come into our lives. The same ideas behind Peter's use of the word test. When these trials come upon you to test you. Any aspect of their present suffering, any aspect of any future suffering that they face, whatever it is, it is part of a divinely ordered, refining fire. It is for a divine purpose, not for our harm, but for our good. And this divine purpose has several facets to it. For one thing, it strengthens believers. The trials strengthen Believers, James expresses this idea in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, when he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. There it is again. Rejoice in the trial. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. What is steadfastness? That's strength under pressure, isn't it? It's like having feet and legs of steel bolted into the ground. I will not be moved. These trials strengthen God's people. For another thing, these trials prove the genuineness of our faith. They prove the genuineness of our faith to ourselves. They prove it to those around us. Think of the life of Job. What purpose was there? for the suffering that Job faced. Well, Job had sinned and he needed to be brought to... No, he didn't. The book says he didn't. Why did he suffer? It strengthened him. It did bring him to a point of repentance, but his sin wasn't the cause of the suffering. He did it in the midst of the suffering. And God corrected him and strengthened his faith and his understanding of God and proved his faith. To whom? Everybody who walked into Job's life and most of all to the devil himself. Make no mistake, friends. God is showing off in the book of Job to Satan. Check this out. That doesn't mean God is carelessly playing with somebody else's life just for his own pleasure. No, God is refining Job and he is showing the strength of true faith in the Lord. Or as Peter explains it back again in chapter 1, verse 7. We already looked at verse 6, now look at verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is a purpose for the hardships that God's people face. Listen, any notion, any notion that following Christ will result in an easy, prosperous life does not square with Scripture. In fact, it's a bald-faced lie. 
Okay? If you hear a preacher or read a book that hints at anything having to do with that, then you need to put the book through the fiery trial. Because the language of following Christ that is used all throughout Scripture is language about counting the cost, taking up your cross, enduring the shame, remaining steadfast under pressure, fighting spiritual warfare, resisting the schemes of the devil, and on and on and on and on. Our comfort, our joy is not that following Christ will get us out of the trouble. That's not what Peter is getting at. It should be no surprise that throughout history, Christians are a suffering people who are misunderstood by the world, falsely accused by the world, mistreated by the world. Peter says that shouldn't frighten us. It's normal, Christian. And it's purposeful. Don't waver in your faith. Be ready. That brings us to the second point that Peter makes. Not only be ready, but also be encouraged. Be encouraged. Remember, everything that Peter says here is for the encouragement, the comforting, the strengthening of God's people. So, in verse 13, he says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Verse 14, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That word rejoice is translated in the New American Standard as keep on rejoicing. That's the sense of this word. It is a constant state of mind. Don't re just rejoice on Sunday. Rejoice at all times. It is a disposition of the heart. It is an orientation of the mind. It isn't a mere feeling since our emotions often change. He doesn't say just be happy-go-lucky all the time. No, sometimes we're suffering and we weep. But even there, we have a rejoicing spirit. It's not a mere feeling. And it's not just rooted in the nature of our circumstances, since we already know those are going to change. And they're not always going to be joyful circumstances. So rejoice, he says, in the suffering. Now, we don't rejoice because we suffer, as if we just love pain. That's not what he is saying, but we rejoice in the midst of the suffering. Because we understand that there is a purpose behind it, and there is a higher, greater focus. And Peter points out here that there are two realities that suffering for Christ reveals that become the basis for rejoicing even while we suffer. The first point is this. You belong to Christ. And the second point is the Spirit of God rests on you. You belong to Christ. Verse 13, we can be encouraged in our suffering because our suffering reminds us that we belong to Christ. Our suffering for Christ reminds us that we belong to Christ. He doesn't just say rejoice and then just leave it there as if we're supposed to just grit our teeth and hang on for dear life. No, he gives us reason to rejoice, reason that is greater than our suffering. You share in Christ's sufferings. He says, what does that mean? The word share is a word that means fellowship or partnership. Peter isn't just saying rejoice because you are suffering like Jesus did. Right? That's, well, hey, just take heart. Somebody suffered worse than you. That's not that kind of advice. What he is saying is rejoice, because when you suffer for Christ's sake, you are participating in his suffering. Just like Paul said, did you catch it in our scripture reading in Galatians 6, verse 17? I bear the marks of Jesus. What does he mean by that? 
Oh, I put his name on my Twitter profile. There's a cross in my profile picture. No, he means I have scars that were given to me because I follow Jesus. And I wear those scars as the team name and number on my uniform. When you suffer for Christ, you have entered into the fellowship of his suffering. You have been brought into the brotherhood of suffering for Christ. And there is good company here. Turn over to Philippians chapter 3, and we'll see this. Paul captures this mindset in his own spiritual experience. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And by that, he doesn't just mean, well, uh, I consider everything to be worthless compared to him, but in some senses, no, I have lost everything for him. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now look at verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, being made like him in his death. Suffering for Christ's sake is not an indication that we have done something wrong, or that we are on the wrong side of history, as the world so desperately wants us to believe. Feeling like strangers in this world because we follow Christ and believe His Word does not mean that our faith is wrong or vain. The world's mockery and hostility is not evidence that we have made a mistake. On the contrary, all of it is cause for rejoicing because it is a share in the sufferings of Christ. It is a vindication that we are indeed on His side and His side is the right side of history. Turn over to John 15, after all, and see the words of Jesus himself. In John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21, he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were not of the world, the world would love you as its own. Wow. Christians who are popular with the world. Christians who spend all of their time and energy and resources seeking to gain approval from the world, and they are all over the place. What does Jesus say? Oops. If the world loves you, you're of the world. But because you, Christian, are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Not only did Jesus get this point, but look at the attitude of the apostles after being threatened and beaten for preaching Christ in Acts chapter 5, verses 41 and 42. Then they left the presence of the council. They left with bruises, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. You almost get the sense that they would have preferred to walk out of there with bruises than not. Verse 42, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. In other words, they didn't stop doing what they were doing that got them beat. They just kept on going. And they rejoiced. Paul captures the essence of this in 2 Corinthians 1.5, expressing what should be the confession of all who follow Christ. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. And that's what Peter says next in this text. There is a correlation between sharing in Christ's sufferings and sharing in His glory. 
He says, rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It's not ultimately our glory, but it is our rejoicing in his glory. And so here, that word rejoice is now used a second time. Only this time it's modified, rejoice and be glad. Well, what does rejoice mean? Be glad. And he says, be glad when you suffer for Christ's sake because you're sharing in his sufferings. And you almost get the sense that, that, that is, that's a choice in spite of our circumstances to be glad and rejoice, to, to, to rejoice, to have that spirit, even though everything against us might be trying to push us the other way. But then he mentions a second rejoicing, and he modifies it to emphasize it. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, he says. in the glory that is being revealed, in the glory that will be revealed, that you are not just a sharer in the sufferings of Christ, but you are a sharer in the revelation of His glory. There, the rejoicing will become more humanly natural because it will be in accord with our circumstances. So don't just rejoice because you know Christ has finished His work on your behalf, but rejoice because you know where this is going. And here again, Peter is giving the suffering Christian steadfast hope in the midst of suffering by setting his mind and his heart on the glorious return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This reminds me of what we, we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, right? About Christ in his suffering, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, you want to see the perfect model of rejoicing even through the pain and the trials of suffering. Look at Jesus himself. And then consider that he endured all of that with godly joy. But we can't explain all of that, right? And how, do, how do you have joy while you weep and while you groan under the pain? But that's the grace that God gives his people. And where was his focus? The joy that was set before him. The glory that is to follow. The exaltation at the right hand of the Father on high. And in his example and in Peter's teaching, we learn that the Christian can be encouraged, can even rejoice in the midst of trials, not because it's easy, but because we recognize that these trials are for a spiritual good, for a good purpose within our lives. They are evidence that we share in the sufferings of Christ and that we belong to Him. They are a reminder that we share, that as we share in His sufferings, we will also share in His glory when it is revealed. And then Peter goes on in verse 14 to show not only do we, are we encouraged in the trials because we belong to Christ, but we are encouraged because in them the Spirit of God rests upon us. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You are blessed, happy. You are people who have delight, who, have, who are the objects of God's delight, who experience delight, even when you suffer. Why? Because the delight and the joy that you have been given is a supernatural delight and joy. It is something that the Holy Spirit works in you. And this idea of the Spirit of glory and of God resting upon you is an evidence of His favor. It is an evidence of His work. It is an evidence of His protection and His guidance and His validation of what you are facing. So Peter mentions being insulted for the name of Christ. You bear that with joy. Why? Not because it's 
natural in this earth to just enjoy that sort of thing, but because the Holy Spirit is directing you through it. He is forming Christ in you through it. He is directing you to His purpose and His end for your life. He is in control of all of this. That word insulted has the idea of reviling and criticizing and mocking. It is the verbal abuse that accompanies the all-around mistreatment of God's people on account of their faith for the name of Christ. And in this, Peter says, we rejoice because we are blessed because the Spirit rests upon us. In other words, though all the world reject us and mistreat you and mock you as a Christian, you have the favor of God resting upon you. And you have the Spirit of God working within you. And in that, your reward in heaven is great. It's much better to have the one smile of God on our lives than to have all the smiles men have to offer. Jesus explains this perfectly in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 11 and 12, when he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're in good company. The suffering is normal. And in it you share in the sufferings of Christ and you share in the brotherhood of those who suffer for Christ and you are blessed. Now, there is a warning that Peter issues here and that brings us to verses 15 through 18 where we see a third point. Be ready, be encouraged, but now be careful. Be careful. Not all suffering is suffering for Christ. Not all suffering is suffering for Christ. We must be careful to make sure that we do not invite the wrong kind of suffering into our lives. And Peter explains here that there are two kinds of suffering. There's suffering for Christ and there's suffering for evil. So he warns in verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. And the language there means make an effort to avoid this. Make sure this doesn't happen in your life. Make sure that somewhere along the lines in your suffering, it doesn't become for this. A murderer is one we know who takes somebody's life. But Jesus gets at the heart of the murder even when he explains in Matthew 5 that a murderer is somebody who has a murderous attitude, who hates his brother, right? So this is more than just, well, okay, don't shoot somebody although you shouldn't. But this is somebody who denigrates the value of human life. Either by taking a life, or by supporting the taking of a life, or by treating it as if you wish it were taken. Then he goes on and he explains likewise that a thief, we should not suffer as a thief. A thief is one who steals from someone else. But again, there's more to it than just don't take someone else's stuff. It has the idea of a spirit of dishonesty and deceit. Scripture's view of this is very broad and sweeping. It can include lying or coveting. It can be applied to areas of lust and adultery, taking something from someone else that does not belong to you. An evildoer, that's a term that's just a reference to general badness, encompassing anything else that hasn't been, uh, been considered yet with murderer and thief. But then Peter singles out another sin, the meddler. Nasby calls it the troublesome meddler, the troublemaker. The word refers to one who interferes or inserts himself into things that are foreign to his calling. He's an agitator. 
a mischief maker, one who likes to start arguments, one who likes to start conflict for no good reason. Well, it's always for good reason. Okay. You probably need to check your heart if that's your response. Well, it's, it's always for good reason. This meddler is one who could be a busybody. It's one who could be a gossip. It can also refer to an agitator such as an insurrectionist or an anarchist or an activist in the extreme senses. Those who seek to fight back against the world systems in the world's ways. Those who seek to try to advance their, their cause through means of force or conflict or destruction. And frankly, I think this could include those that think that the, the way to fight back against the world's worldliness is to boycott businesses and humiliate individuals. Christians try that kind of stuff. And the heart behind what we're hearing in this passage is, if the world hates you and mistreats you for that, you've gotten what you've asked for. I don't think that's what Peter is talking about here. That's not the kind of suffering. Beware, Christian, that if you suffer, you are actually suffering for Christ's sake, not because you've made yourself unnecessarily a stench to the world. Yet, he explains in verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In what name? In the name Christian. That is associated with the name of Christ. When we see that word Christian, today we don't really think much about it, right? Well, that's the people who follow Christ. But in Peter's day, Christians didn't call themselves Christians. The haters of Christians called them Christians. It was a term of derision that was heaped upon them by people who hated them. And Peter says, when you suffer under that name, pick it up. Wear it. And wear it for the glory of God because in suffering for that name, you are identifying with Christ. Understand this, Christian. More and more, this world is treating Christianity as foolishness. Those who reject Christ already think we're silly and ignorant. And in the days to come, it's only going to get worse. That doesn't need to surprise us. We ought not be shaken. We need to embrace that, not because we love suffering, not because we're trying to be weird, but because it is a, a reminder that we belong to Christ and this world is not our home. And that brings us to verses 17 and 18, where we see not only that there are two kinds of suffering, but there are two kinds of judgment. There is purifying judgment and there is condemning judgment. Purifying judgment for Christians, condemning judgment for everyone else. Peter writes in verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Verse 18 is a quote from Proverbs chapter 11, verse 31. And it is meant to reinforce the point of verse 17. And the point is this, that judgment on the household of God is not where the judgment stops. It is not final punishment for sin because for the household of God, our sins have already been punished finally and forever. That is not what it is talking about. It is speaking of the Lord's chastening and discipline for the sake of purifying, cleansing, clarifying, sanctifying His church. In a sense, fitting us for heaven to live with Him there. And I think this is in part what we are facing in the Christian experience today. It is becoming less popular to be, be a Christian because more and more the world is becoming antagonistic to the core of our beliefs. And what are we finding out that's happening? More and more and more Christians are giving in and going along with the world, some of them proving they were never truly part of us to begin with. Is that something to be ashamed of? Is that something to be worried about? 
No, this is the judgment that begins in the house of God. It's clarifying. It's purifying. Because what else I've noticed is that the true Christians are understanding more and more about what's at stake. They're getting into the word more and more. They're growing like they haven't grown before. They're being strengthened like they haven't needed to be strengthened before. Times might be getting harder for the church, but I think the church is getting pure. That's what God does within his church. But that's not where this judgment stops. It only begins at the household of God. And if God is willing to chasten his own children in ways that are painful and difficult, what is he willing to do to those who don't believe in Christ? To those who have rejected him? That's the question Peter poses. And guess what? He doesn't answer it. It's an open-ended question. It's almost a rhetorical question. It's meant for us to use our imaginations and consider, friends, if you are not in Christ, the judgment God is going to pour out on you is something you can't even imagine. And it will come just as surely as the church is in the refining fires today. Revelation 20 teaches of a the place of this judgment, that it is the lake of fire that burns eternally. And Jesus describes it as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, where there is weeping and there is gnashing of teeth. Christian, rejoice. That's not the fire you are in. Your fire is good. It is for God's glory. It is for your eternal Good, and you have been delivered from that ultimate suffering. But my non-Christian friend, you are headed to that place of eternal fire if you are not in Jesus Christ. I urge you today to turn from your sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and your Lord. Now that brings us finally to Peter's fourth point. Be confident, Christian. Be confident. Be ready. Be encouraged. Be careful. Be confident. Verse 19, Therefore, on the basis of all this, this is the conclusion of the whole matter. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That word, entrust, as the idea of deposit for safekeeping. You're in his hands. Two basic final concluding words of instruction on the basis of all that, Christian. Trust God because he's a faithful creator. That title, faithful creator, pretty much encapsulates everything that he is, right? He's faithful, he's trustworthy. He is sure. He is unmoving. He will never fail. He is perfect God, so he is perfectly faithful. You will not find anybody who is more reliable than he is. And he is the creator, which shows us not only is he faithful, not only does he mean well, but he is powerful and he accomplishes everything he sets out to accomplish. He is in charge of everything so that there is not one circumstance, there is not one experience, there is not one trial, there is not one spark from any fire that, can, that escapes his notice, that is outside of his control, but what is used for your eternal good. Christian, trust God, though you are suffering in this world. Don't be confused. Don't fear. Trust God and keep doing good. Keep doing good. You know what good is? It's good. You know who defines what good is? Oh, heavens, please don't be looking at your TV for a definition of what good is. You watch your TV, down is up, up is down, pink is green, green is pink, or should I say pink is blue, blue is pink. Don't look at your TV to figure out what good is. Who defines what good is? 
the God who is good himself. Christian, trust him. And set about your life to keep on doing what is good. Peter says in chapter 2, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Keep on doing what is right. Don't fear. Don't give in. Steadfast hope, the steadfast hope that God provides is staying on course. It's keeping our eyes on Christ. It is finding our comfort, our hope, our joy in Him. And then it is obeying His commands and going where He leads. Psalm 3, verse 8, is the conclusion of David's grief in one of the most difficult moments of his life. And after pouring out his complaint to God and resetting his mind on the faithfulness of God, he says this, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Christians, whatever we face today, salvation belongs to our Lord, and his blessing is upon us. So rejoice. Let's pray.